thank you, first, uh, for inviting me to this uh, conference. This is extraordinary to have so many people interested in Ibn Arabi. More than uh, any other Muslim thinker, Ibn Arabi dedicated his teachings to clarifying the presence of the divine wisdom in all things and the human necessity of conforming to that wisdom. The arguments that he offers are at once metaphysical, scriptural, cosmological, psychological, scientific, and ethical. He addresses every dimension of human and cosmic existence and speaks constantly of the inherent goodness of all of creation and the human duty to respect the rights of all creatures, not simply the rights of God and the rights of our fellow human beings. If there is a single scriptural theme to his writings, after to heed, it is certainly the prophetic saying, give to each that has a right, its right. He reads this in conjunction with the chronic insistence that God created the universe and everything within it, bilhaq, that is, by means of and through the right, the real, the appropriate, the true. Ibn Arabi understands this to mean that everything in the universe is right, true, and real. Human beings, however, are not necessarily given the insight to recognize the truth and rightness of all things. In order to achieve such recognition, People need prophetic guidance, and only then can they live a life that is right, true, and appropriate. That right and appropriate life demands that they respond rightly and appropriately to the rightness and appropriateness of all things, to the extent of human capacity. In other words, the divine wisdom that has created human beings has imposed upon them the duty of giving to everything that has a right, its right. Now, one of the many sides to Ibn Arabi's project of clarifying the rights and the truths of all things is cosmology. That is, the explication of the nature of the universe with its diverse types and many sorts of creatures. One should not, of course, confuse this traditional notion of cosmology with what goes by the name in modern times. Today, when scientists speak of cosmology, they mean physical cosmography. That is, the structure of the universe as perceived by means of the technological tools and mathematical theories of physics. Physics can only deal with what is traditionally called the visible or corporeal realm. And the visible realm is only the surface or the skin of the universe. The universe in Islamic terms is not simply physical manifestation. Rather, the word alam, world, designates everything other than God. So, in addition to the visible realm, shahada, it also addresses invisible realms, ghayb, which are infinitely more extensive than what we can perceive with our senses, even if these are aided by the most sophisticated instruments. 
Ibn Arabi's most famous cosmological scheme is that of the breath of the All-Merciful, in which he elucidates Quranic references to the speech of God. The Quran tells us in several verses that God brings things into existence simply by saying be to them, and that God's words are in effect infinite. If all the oceans were ink and the trees were pen, God's words would not run out, so says the Quran. Ibn explains God's words are the analogy of our own words, which are also inexhaustible, at least potentially. We bring the words out from our awareness, just as God brings His words out from His infinite knowledge. We articulate words in our breath, just as God articulates His words in the all-merciful breath. Our words disappear as quickly as we utter them, just as God, God's words also pass away. Everything perishes but His face, says the Quran. And Ibn Arabi insists that this rule applies to every moment of every existent thing. It follows that each moment of existence, each moment of each thing is a new creation, a new articulation of the thing's existence. Failing this new articulation, God's words, the universe, would simply disappear. For nothing can exist without constant divine support. Ibn Arabi devotes one of the longest chapters of the Futuhat, chapter 198, to the breath of the All-Merciful. There he takes the Arabic alphabet as representing 28 primordial divine letters. In order to create the cosmos with all its invisible and visible levels, God composes words and sentences and books employing those 28 letters. The outline of this cosmological scheme is well known. Titus Burkhardt wrote a, a little book about it many years ago. Each of the 28 letters corresponds to many things, including one of the divine names and one category of created things. Some of the letters represent creatures that appear on a descending arc of existence, the movement from the invisible realms into the semi-visible realm of receptivity, in which the visible cosmos is born. Other letters represent creatures that appear on the ascending arc of existence, which begins in visibility and then returns to the invisible realms of spirit and consciousness from which it arose. On this returning arc, the 27th letter represents human beings, and the 28th letter designates the stations and stages of perfection that are achieved by those human beings who enter into the presence of God. The 26th letter represents the jinn, and the 25th letter, the angels. Inasmuch as these are creatures that are present in the invisible realms on the returning ark. Letters 23 through 20. Five designate the visible creatures, that is, minerals, 
plants, and animals. <clears throat> Notice that modern cosmology deals almost exclusively with the 23rd letter of the alphabet. The other 27 letters lie outside of the realm of its competence. This is why it hardly deserves modern scientific cosmology. It hardly deserves the name cosmology. Today, I want to look at the 25th cosmic letter in an attempt to sum up Ibn Arabi's understanding of the role of animals in creation. In other words, what is the rightful and the truthful situation of the animal realm? How can we, as human beings, give to animals their rights? Now, Ibn Arabi has a great deal to say on this issue, so I can only make a few quick comments. I am drawing from the section of chapter 198 on the 25th letter, and from chapters 357 and 372, both of which announced in their titles that they will address the nature of Baha'in, that is, the dumb beasts, Bahima. Now, the word for animal in Arabic is haywan, living thing. Given that each of the 28 letters is governed by one specific divine name, one might guess that the divine name related to animals would be al-hay, be alive, or perhaps al-muhi, the life-giver. This is not the case, however, and the reason is not too difficult to understand. Ibn Arabi tells us that everything in the universe is in fact alive, but that the life of most things is hidden from our sight. This is so because life is presupposed by every divine quality. Knowledge, power, desire, mercy, justice, and so on, have no meaning unless they are the qualities of something that is alive. In other words, God must be alive to know, to desire, and to act. It follows that life permeates all divine attributes. Hence, life also pervades all creatures, because creatures are simply the traces and properties of the divine names. Now, in Ibn Arabi's way of looking at the universe, all things are living words articulated in the breath of the All-Merciful. This is to say that the divine life and the divine mercy are in fact the same thing. When God says in the Quran, my mercy embraces everything, this means, according to Ibn Arabi, that, I quote, he has mercy on the cosmos through life. For life is a sphere of mercy that embraces everything. Elsewhere, Ibn Arabi explains that everything in the three visible realms, <coughs> that is plants, uh, minerals, plants, and animals, are under the control of the angels that are called Souls, nafs, nafus. By means of their souls, all creatures receive life from God, and they know Him. People refer to things as animals, that is, heiwan, only when they perceive the obvious signs of life. But, says Ibn Arabi, I quote, all are pervaded by life, so all things speak the praise of their Creator from whence we do not hear. God teaches them things through their innate disposition, from whence we do not know. So there remains nothing, wet or dry, hot or cold, inanimate, plant or animal, that does not glorify God. 
with a tongue specific to its kind. Now this universal glorification by all things is a frequent theme in Ibn Arabi's writings. He takes the Quranic references to the speech of things quite literally. In contrast to Muslim philosophers, theologians, and scientists, he makes no attempt to make a tafaveel of these verses. That is an interpretation or an explaining away. Uh, he doesn't have recourse to notions of metaphor or symbolism. This points to one of his constant uh, critiques of people who follow their rational understanding in everything. That is what we know as common sense. In the two chapters that talk about dumb beasts, Ibn Arabi devotes a good part of the discussion to showing that rational, common sense interpretations of Quranic verses about the speech of inanimate things are misguided and wrong. Now his basic argument against rational, common sense interpretation comes from two directions. First, in order to conclude that things, inanimate things, do not talk, people have to claim that God does not mean what he says in the Quran. Second, Ibn Arabi and his peers, that is, those about whom he commonly calls the Gnostics, or the Fah, or the folk of unveiling, cash, such people actually hear and understand the speech of all things, so they know by first-hand experience that everything is alive. They do not take God's words on faith. In both chapters on dumb beasts, Ibn Arabi explains why they have this name, behemoth, which the Arabic dictionary is defined as quadruped or animal. Ibn Arabi suggests that we can understand the significance of the term if we remember that it derives from the same root as mopan, which means dubious, obscure, vague, unclear. For example, in chapter 378, he writes, I quote, Each created thing has a speech specific to it, taught by, to it by God. It is heard by those whose hearing God has opened up to its perception. All movement and craftsmanship that becomes manifest from animals and does not become manifest, say, from a professor, possessor of reason, reflection, and deliberation, along with all the measures that are seen therein, signify that animals have a knowledge of this in themselves. Ibn Arabi goes on to explain that animals perform many skillful deeds and construct marvelous things in a manner that suggests that they must be intelligent and rational. Yet, observers cannot perceive any sort of rational faculty. So they remain puzzled as to how animals can do such things. Now this puzzlement, of course, had not been diminished by modern science, which still struggles to explain the multifarious skills of animals. So Ibn Arabi writes, I quote, This may be why they are called dumb beasts. That is because of the obscurity, Mubham, of the affair. Except for us, we people of unveiling, except for us, because it is clear as it can be. The obscurity that has overcome some people is because of their lack of unveiling in this. So they know the created things only in the measure of what they witness from them, what they see from them. In continuing this discussion, Ibn Arabi has recourse to a few Quranic verses to show that faith is on the side of those who witness the real nature of things through unveiling. 
Even though the rational thinkers, I quote, even though the rational thinkers and the common people may say that something in the cosmos is neither alive nor an animal, in our view, God gave every such thing when he created it the innate disposition to recognize and know him. Each is alive and speaks rationally and glorifying its Lord. The faithful perceive this through their faith, and the focal unveiling perceive it in its actual entity. Now, as is usually the case with Ibn Arabi's writing, he soon gets around to explaining why we should care about the fact that all things have knowledge from God, and that all things express their knowledge through speech. Here I can mention one basic lesson, and that is that the awareness of all things should encourage us to add shame. Shame, hayah, is not considered great virtue nowadays in the West, but it certainly has had an honorable role to play in many civilizations, not least Islam. The Prophet said every religion has its character trait, and the character trait of Islam is shame. Shame is a close ally of Isan doing the beautiful, which the Prophet described as worshiping God as if you see him. If one acts as if one sees God, shame will be a constant companion. And if we understand that all things are aware and all have the ability to speak, this can only increase our sense of shame. Everything is watching us, and everything has the ability to speak to God about our activities. I quote from Ibn Arabi, someone may come to know that there is no existent thing that is not alive and speaking. In other words, there is nothing that is not a rational animal, whether it is called inanimate, or plant, or dead. This is because there is nothing, whether or not it stands by itself, that does not glorify its Lord in praise. And this attribute belongs only to something that is alive. Now, once someone comes to witness the life of all things, he will be full of shame. Not only because he, when he is in Jawa, that is public with other people, but also when he is in Halwa, that is alone in a private retreat. He will see that in fact he is never alone, for he can never escape a location that surrounds him. And even if he could escape his surroundings, he would still have shame before his bodily members and his organs. For they are the means whereby he does what he does. He knows that on the day of resurrection, his bodily members will be called to witness, and that they will bear witness truthfully. So, someone like this can never be in Khalwa. When someone achieves this state, Ibn Arabi writes, he has joined the degree of the dumb beasts, who are aware of the presence of God. In short, Ibn Arabi maintains that dumb beasts possess an exalted knowledge and understanding from God. And he concludes that anyone who considers himself superior to the beasts is ignorant of his own situation. Ibn Arabi stresses that such ignorance is characteristic of the philosophical and theological approaches to Islamic learning, not to speak of the modern scientific disciplines. In short, his advice to his readers if they are not among the folk of unveiling, is as follows, I quote, Consider, O you who are veiled, how your level compares to that of the dumb beasts. The dumb beasts recognize you, they recognize that to which your situation will go back, and they recognize that for which you were created. 
But you are ignorant of all of this. Let me turn to a second topic that Ibn Arabi commonly addresses when he talks about animals. This is related to the specific divine name that exercises its sway over the 25th letter, letter of the breath of the Almerson. This name is Al-Muzib, the abaser, which is typically contrasted with Al-Muaz, the exalted. People naturally assume that it is much better to be exalted than to be abased. But Ibn Arabi wants to show that animals who are ruled over by the name abaser have a much more exalted position with God than most human beings. This is precisely because animals gladly accept their abasement, whereas human beings tend to forget that they are nothing in the face of God. They always want to be something, so they seek exaltation. But by claiming to be what they are not, however, they fall into heedlessness and they rebel against their own God-given nature. Hence, the most exalted of all human beings in God's eyes are in fact those who are the most abased before Him. Abasement at root is nothing other than obodiyya, the quality of being an abd, a servant or a slave. That is why in Ibn Arabi's reading, the most exalted of all human beings, the perfect human being, al-insan al-kana, is also called al-abd al-kana, the perfect servant, the most abased of all creatures before God. Now, in explaining the nature of abasement, Ibn Arabi returns to the Quranic notion of tasqir, subjection. Uh, God, inasmuch as he is the abaser, al-muzil, who subjects some creatures to other creatures. In fact, Ibn Arabi spends most of the section on animals in the chapter on the breath, unpacking and explaining the reality, reality of subjection, tasqir. He begins the section like this. God says, we abase them, that is the cattle, to them. And some of them, they ride, people ride, and some of the, them, the people eat. God also says, he subjected to you everything in the heavens and everything in the earth, all from him. So animals are included in this. This is the ruling property of the name abaser in the cosmos. God made some of them subjected to others through the name God says, he has elevated some of them over others in degrees, so that some of them may take others in subjection. He considers this discussion of subjection by pointing out that it is two-sided. In other words, when something is subjected to you, you are subjected to it. Ibn Arabi explains how this works with the example of a king and his subjects. The Quranic verse just cited, says that God has elevated some over others with the degree, darajah, that has been given them. In the case of a king, God has given the king the degree of kingship. And this degree allows him to rule over others. The king subjects his citizens precisely because of the degree. And hence the citizens are abased before the king and must do what the king commands. However, it works the other way too. For, as Ibn Arabi says, among the divine names, the abaser rules over both sides. He writes, the degree of the citizens and the subjects requires that they subject the king to themselves. For the king must guard and defend them, fight against their enemies, judge disputes among them, and seek their rights. 
Uh-huh. Ibn Arabi then points out that subjection also applies in the relationship between God and man. The name abaser rules over both sides. Although man is abased before God, God is also abased before man. This is a version of Ibn Arabi's famous discussion of the mutual relationship between Lord and vassal, Rabb and Malbub, or the God and that which is guided over, Al-Allah and Al-Ma'lub. He explains this like this. God says, He is a God in the heavens and the earth. God says, He's subjected to you what is in the heavens and what is in the earth altogether. Luqman said to his son, O my son, if it should be but the weight of one grain of mustard seed, and though it be in a rock, or in the heavens, or in the earth, God shall bring it. For God is in the earth. God is in the heaven. Uh, God is in the rock. And God is with you wherever you are. The Creator is never separate from the created things, nor is the abaser separate from the act of abasing. If the two were separate, the description would be separate from God, and the name would disappear. Now, Ibn Arabi then explains that when God says in the Quran, I created jinn and mankind only to worship me, this means that he created them to abase themselves before God. Therefore, he created them with the name Abaser. At the same time, God describes how he guards over all things and preserves all things. Like the king in the example, God, God's degree of godliness subjects him to what the cosmos seeks from him. That is, the preservation of existence. In continuing his argument, Ibn Arabi explains that God abases human beings by placing within them the attributes of poverty, indigence, and need. The Quran says, people, you're the poor towards God, and God, he is the rich. Because of their need, people then become abased before anything in which they see what they need. And everything needs something else. The cosmos is filled with mutual need, which is in fact the need of all things for God, whose attributes are displayed in the needed objects. It follows that it is need that ties all of existence together. The well-being of the entire cosmos depends upon need, so Ibn Arabi concludes with perhaps a touch of hyperbole. Uh, I quote, no other divine name bestows general well-being on the cosmos like the name Abaser. And there is nothing in the divine presence that has a property like this name. Its property permeates this world and the next world constantly. When the real allows one of the Gnostics to witness it. And when he discloses himself to the Gnostic, within that name and from that name, there is no one among God's servants more felicitous, more happy than he, and no one with more knowledge of God's mysteries through unveiling. Now, as for the rest of us, the lesson we need to learn from the mutual abasement of all things is the understanding of who we are in the cosmic economy. We should never overestimate our own worth. We should not consider ourselves exalted because in fact, we are abased before the divine power and before all things. Ibn Ar explains this in one of the chapters on the dumb beasts. This is the 
a last quotation. Know that, even though God has subjected and abased the dumb beasts to man, you should not be heedless of the fact that you are subjected to them. You look to their well-being by watering them, by feeding them, by cleaning their places, by coming into contact with dung and wings because of that, and by protecting them from the heat and the cold that harm them. This and similar things are because the real has subjected you to them, and he has placed need for them in your soul. So you have no superior or superiority over the beasts through subjection. For God has made you more needy of them than they are needy of you. Do you not see how God's messenger became angry when he was asked about a stray she-camel? The messenger said, what's it to you? What is she to you? She has her feet, she has her stomach. She will find water and eat from trees until her master finds her. She has no need for you. So, God did not make the animals needy toward you, but he placed within you the need for them. All dumb beasts that have the means to flee, to flee from you will do so. And this is only because they have no need for you. And they have been given the innate knowledge that you will harm them. The fact that you search for them and that you exert effort in acquiring things from them shows that you are needy toward them. By God, when the dumb beasts have more independence than you, how can it occur to you that you are superior to them? Very true are the words of him who said, No man will be destroyed if he knows his own worth. <laughs> Thank you.